You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's story, one of a linguist who spent time eavesdropping and listening into the Taliban through two tours in Afghanistan. We'll get to him coming up in just a moment. But first, again, we continue, guys, hitting that holiday season. Make sure you go to HazardGround.com first. Click on that Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. Or if you want to do any Amazon shopping for the holidays, go to HazardGround.com first. Again, hit that button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shop. you're going to buy for the holidays for yourself. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. Then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations featured here on the show. Uh, also works from your smartphone really easy. So if you save all your credit card information, if you go to hazardground.com on your smartphone, it'll redirect it to the app. So it's very user-friendly and easy and convenient to do so from there. Please continue to give us uh, five-star reviews, thumbs up, uh, wherever, you're getting, wherever you're getting this podcast, wherever you're watching it. Uh, continue to leave us positive reviews. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate all support. Subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Hit that like button, smash that thumbs up. And tell us why you love the show. Leave the comments. We certainly appreciate you guys taking part in that as well each and every week. And please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. And connect with us there. If you'd love to get in touch with me, please send an email to producer at hazardground.com. And I will get back to you guys. If you have any guest suggestions, I always love to hear from you guys out there who you want to see on the show. So, again, producer at hazardground.com. All right, this week's guest is a former Air Force member who spent just over five years in the Air Force. He became an airborne cryptologic linguist, which is a fancy term just for a linguist. He has two deployments to Afghanistan. Over the course of two tours, listened to hundreds of different hours of Taliban discussions, conversations, and peace and in battle. He's written a book about it that is out now. It's called What the Taliban Told Me. He is Ian Fritz joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Ian, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, listen, it's a... Uh, it's a story that grabbed my eye immediately. Um, and the idea that you get a chance to sit here and listen to all of these conversations that, uh, you know, that old saying, I'd love to be a fly on the wall where you were the fly and Afghanistan was the wall. And you heard a lot more than most people um, had ever heard. And and from that standpoint, again, we'll get more into uh, your journey through it and what you're, what you're dealing with afterwards. And uh, the book, again, what the Taliban told me is out now. So, uh, very interested to hear this story. Now, at the tender age of 18, you joined the Air Force out of necessity. Why? Uh, so I, I grew up relatively poor in a pretty small town in North Florida. Um, I didn't get into college out of high school for a lot of reasons, uh, some of them being poor, some of them being lazy. But functionally, once I graduated high school, I pretty much had nothing going for me. I worked at a Chinese restaurant as a waiter, and I could have kept doing that, but um, that wouldn't have led to like any real life. So I, uh, I had had a recruiter from my high school in 10th grade and he had talked about this, this really cool sounding job of an airborne cryptologic linguist. It's just like, just the title is so you know neat. Um, and I, I remembered that at some point after graduating and kind of just like stewing and nothingness. And I went and found a recruiter and I said, Hey, is that, is that a real job? That guy tell the truth. And he said, yeah. And so I, I went through the whole uh, rigmarole of signing up to do that. Uh, pretty much to just be able to get out of the town that I grew up in and get away from the uh, less than ideal circumstances that I grew up in. What was it about being a cryptologic linguist that uh, an airborne, no less? I mean, you're talking and listening in the air. Um, no, I kid. But what was it about being a linguist that necessarily lured you to it? What sounded so cool about it? 
the the learning languages part that someone would pay you to go learn a language um the cryptologic thing didn't really mean a ton to me other than it, it sounds like this sexy spy word you know like you hear cryptology and you think nsa or like action movies or something uh and the airborne thing was just that the the way it's pitched which had some truth to it is that in the air force at least there are airborne linguists and ground linguists and ground linguists are shut up in these, you know, windowless buildings for 10 or 12 hours a day, many days a week. And what they do is really, really important, but it's like, it's the opposite of sexy to most people versus the airborne linguists, at the very least, you get to fly, which generally means you get to travel. Um, so the idea that somebody would, you know, pay me who, you know, graduated high school and that was it to learn how to fly in planes and to learn another language was pretty exciting. Uh, did you take a language in high school? <laughs> I took French. I, I don't know any French. Um, I, pass? <laughs> I passed because my the French teacher at my high school, bless her heart, was an incredibly kind human. Um, oh. Perhaps not, not because you parlez-vous français, obviously. Not at all, because I know definitely not. All right. Well, I was just kind of curious because again, you get you get fluent in Dari and Pash too. But um, take me through your first experience in the air force. I mean, you know, like even going to basic training, was it, was it a shock for you? A culture shock? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, I had a basic, you know, the air force is, we don't call it boot camp, right? It's basic training. Like it's not, it's nothing compared to any stretch of imagination, like the Marines or even the army, but there is, you know, lots of yelling and lots of, um, trying to break you down and scare you and all that. The, the immediate moment that I like had my sort of like Dorothy, uh, Wizard of Oz was the my training instructor, you know, came up to me and he's this very scary human. And he says, Oh, where are you from? And he's screaming it, but he says, Where are you from? And I said, Oh, Lake City. And he like punched the locker behind me and he said, Lake City, where? And I grew up my whole life in Florida. And like in my mind, I was still, if I said Lake City, you knew where I was because I was still in Florida, even though I was in Texas by that point. Um, so suddenly the world got like much bigger, much faster. Oh, okay. So he wasn't from Lake City, Florida. He's from Lake City, Texas. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I he he did. He's just like, what? Why are you giving me the name of a town that I've never heard of? You know? Oh, okay, I got you. Yeah, right. Like I didn't say the state. I should have reasonably said, oh, I'm from Florida. But I grew up in such a small place that, like, well, of course you're from Florida because everyone's from Florida because we're all here. It, it never even crossed my mind to specify, you know, the fact that I was from a different state. Was there anything physically demanding about the the, the basic training experience for you? For me, yeah. So I, I had to lose 40 pounds to even join the Air Force. Um, wow. Yeah, I was really overweight. Uh, and so I think, my, the, you know, there's like an initial PT assessment or whatever. Uh, I did 11 push-ups maybe. Like that was all I could physically do. Um, my knee hit the ground. So it was that was the hardest part for me was the, the physical stuff because I was not um, at all physically fit. All right, so you sign this contract to, to be a, to be a linguist. Um, when you get through when you get through basic training, um, do you feel like hey, you know, the hard part's over? Uh, no, no. You get told um, going in. You know, it's the I think the the fastest you could possibly become an airborne linguist is like a year and a half if everything went really smoothly, and if you had to learn Spanish because it's the shortest language or one of the shortest languages. Um, but it's usually, it's a two year, like the average number is two years to do the job. So you get I, mean, I, I so. guess, I mean, did you feel like you had cleared the hardest part for you? 
No, I was very, I was, I was, uh, you get told a lot that language school is going to be incredibly hard and has this really high attrition rate and all that. And I was still, I was very excited about that, but I was definitely anxious about that because you're just told time and again that like most people fail out. How quickly after basic training do you get to language school? Not too quickly for me. So let's say I graduated basic training in March and I I got to language school in late June or July, I think. March of what year? 2008. Okay. So you signed up already knowing what was going on in the world and everything else. I mean, was combat something that you were interested in? Is it fair? Is that the right word to use? <laughs> it probably is the right word, but definitely not. So when you, um, the vast majority of airborne linguists in the Air Force uh, fly on a plane called the Rivet Joint, or the RC-135 Rivet Joint, which is stationed out of Omaha Air Force Base, uh, or off the Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. And the Rivet Joint is this, it's a jumbo jet, it's like a 747, a uh, huge spy plane, you know, many hundreds of millions of dollars. And it flies really high, like 30,000 feet, multiple hundreds of miles an hour. And it just does these giant, giant tracks and can collect sort of electromagnetic information from everywhere, which is not, you might say, well, you're deployed and you're flying over, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq or what have you, but it, it's not combat. If I had asked anybody, you know, hey, as an airborne linguist, am I going to see combat? They would have laughed me out of the room, right? It's just like not the nature of the work. So I, I wasn't, I don't think I, at that time, I didn't have strong feelings like pro or against the idea of combat. It just wasn't anything that crossed my mind because it wasn't supposed to be something that I would do. Gotcha. Okay. Supposed to be in the operative word there. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so um, when you get to language school, do you know what language you want to do or is it given to you or how does that work? It's given to you. So I, I don't know how it works now, but in, when I was joining, you know, my recruiter said, yeah, you, you get to choose, or at the very least, he said, you know, you get a preference and that's, you do get to make a list, right? So for whatever reason, I, I put Russian as my number one language. And then I don't know what I put after that. Um, but after basic training, you do a very short uh, class called Aircrew Fundamentals. Um, like everyone who flies in the Air Force has to go through it. And it was there that I got assigned my first language, which was Dari. And I immediately said, what the fuck is Dari? Like, I had no idea what it was. I'd never heard of this language. And I had to go find someone to tell me, you know, what it was and where it was spoken. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> how did that question go? Who did you go find? I'm just curious because they, they must have looked there at you. A, yeah, there was a guy at our at the schoolhouse who he had, he had been uh, in Dari at, at language school. And I had heard of him and someone reminded me, you know, hey, specifically it's that guy. So I went and found him and I was like, dude, what is this? And he, he, um, he had finished the course, but I, he hadn't passed the final exam. And so his, to his mind, it was very difficult and it, it is difficult, but you know, he was just like immediately like, it's terrible. You're gonna have to learn all this crazy stuff. It's incredibly difficult. You're gonna have a terrible time. That's a great, uh, great motivation right there. Yeah. Um, so how does you have to take, cause I am completely unaware of how language school goes. I mean, I took Spanish in high school. I sure. took it in college for a year and then placed out of it because I was yo hablo espanol mucho. Uh, but beyond that, I don't know how language school works for the military. It's it's a like fascinating and incredible institution. So it's the Defense Language Institute or DLI. It's in Monterey, California. It is technically on an Army post, but it's really a DOD wide institution. Um, uh, with the exception, I think, of the Coast Guard. But so you have everyone there, Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force. Um, there are a few thousand students at any given point in time, and they teach, I don't know, 
at least at least a dozen languages at any given point in time. But the way it works is that it's it's functionally a job, right? You you're in the military, they, you know, the military owns your body, owns your mind to some extent. And so you go to class five days a week, seven, eight hours a day, you have homework after that, you have much more homework on the weekends, you are uh pretty much told that you are only going to speak language the language that you're learning when you're at school. That's not like necessarily possible at the very beginning. You would be mute, right? You don't know anything. But eventually that becomes true that you like only speak in that language when you're learning. Um, you're taught by all native instructors or 90% native instructors. There are some military language instructors for like military type lessons, but otherwise you're getting taught by natives from uh, whatever country of origin of the language that you're going to learn. So where is where your, your native from? Uh, so all my teachers were from Afghanistan. Um, different different parts north south they all spoke dari obviously um, a number of them also spoke pashtu a number of them also spoke urdu some of them spoke hindi um, they all had some knowledge of arabic because of the nature of dari so yeah they, they they come from all walks of life at least in these sort of smaller languages so i had professors who you know before the taliban were in medical school or were doctors or were lawyers um, i had a professor who taught at the Sorbonne in France at some point before he made it to America. So it's not, they're not all just like language instructors. They're people who've had fascinating lives who then wind up teaching language. Yeah, I guess when you think about it, like, you know, if someone asked us to teach English, you'd be like, yeah, I don't want to do that, but I theoretically could. If that was the only job that was available, I could go teach English to people who can't speak English. Right. Uh, so yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, a plumber could teach English if they can speak, theoretically. Uh, <laughs> but neither here nor there. So, all right, you, you get immersed in in Dari. Um, well, let me. This is a big picture question because I know this. I mean, I know me. Like I've always been good at speaking foreign languages, right? You know, I mean, I, I grew up with Italian. I, I took Spanish, and they're very similar. But I've always had a knack, like you know, just one of those skills you pick it up rather easily. Mm-hmm. So, in my course of you know my first twelve plus months in Baghdad, you know, by the end of that tour. I wouldn't call myself fluent, but I would call myself able to just be able to communicate. Like I could speak to an average Iraqi Arabic speaker and get through a sentence, probably fairly broken, right? To there, like we would call broken English, it would be broken Arabic to them, but they would understand what I meant and got the point of just just because I'm living in it right now. I have an interpreter and I'm speaking with Iraqis every single day. If you're aware and you just start paying attention, you hear things, right? You just start to pick it up. I say all that to say, um, that when you look at Arabic and, and all the, the dialects of it are insane. And I would remember my interpreter telling me relentlessly, like that dude is from here. I can tell in his accent. I can tell in his voice. That guy is not from here. And he would be like, nope, that's going to give him away. If he said, if he has to speak, it's going to like, they would tell me these things that the dialects, um, and just sort of the prose, if you will, the syntax of the way they speak is so you know, uh, so much of a giveaway to where they're actually from. When you just mentioned Dari, Pashto, uh, you know, uh, Hindi and all the other ones, I mean, Afghanistan is twice as big as Iraq. Um, how do you, how do you learn all of those dialects? Or do you have to? Mm, so Arabic is, is much uh, more complicated on that front than Dari or even the posture really, right? Because Arabic, it's where you have Iraqi, Yemeni, Lebanese, Egyptian, um, Moroccan, right? You've got totally different countries spread across thousands of miles that have developed that language over time. 
So like Arabic linguists in the Air Force, they all learn modern standard Arabic, which is functionally like Quranic Arabic or news Arabic. And then, yeah, they have to go learn all these dialects if they want to work in a certain place. Dari, not so much, right? So Dari is just spoken predominantly in the northern part of Afghanistan. And it's probably closer to like, you know, if you have a southern accent versus if you have a New York accent. Like you could say, oh, okay, it's the same language. It's not a dialect. It's just certain people from different places sound different. Right. <laughs> Pashto is a different story. Pashto, you get into like, oh, okay, you're from here. You're from here. You pronounce words completely differently. Like letters sound different in this language. That gets much more complicated. But for Dari, it's it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, because I, I, again, I, that's that's the hard part. I, I would think. I mean, you know, again, I, I I've learned Spanish. I I can speak it very well, and and. But, you know, like when someone is it's not their native tongue. And so, you know, but I guess as a linguist, are you actually doing any interpreting or at all? No. Right. And so yeah. I guess I guess my, in the big picture, because I want to get into the nitty gritty here. But in the big picture, it's like when you're listening into a conversation, are you able to pick up those dialects and understand where people are from? Mm. Or are you just more focused on the words themselves and, and the content? I'm really more focused on the content, specifically in the job that I did, because my my job was all tactical, right? It was all over firefighting stuff. Okay. Um, there are other linguists who who had more strategic type positions. They would have to know that kind of stuff. They would have to be able to say, "Oh well, yeah, I'm listening to this guy, and he's talking, and he's probably from this area, and that matters because blah blah blah." It's interesting. I, I, I again, I'm learning a lot here. So, and I, I just want was because I know how many different dive. Di- dialects of arabic there are that i was just curious yeah. it's the same for you um so you dive into dari here um <laughs> your first day <laughs> i'm curious you know like did you realize boy this is not the language i don't want to do this anymore um no okay. i i have day. <laughs> no i i never had that so i've i've always been like i didn't necessarily do all that well in high school but i've, I've pretty much always been a huge nerd and um very specifically i've always been a nerd about language like i i can just respect math and and i i love science i i you know study biology after the air force but i've always loved to read i think i've always just loved words and sounds so it, it was intimidating for sure right so dari uses the air you've you you know obviously have seen and maybe even tried to copy the arabic alphabet which is 26 letters but each of those letters has three forms or almost each, right? They have a beginning form, a middle form, and an end form, depending on where they are in a word. Dari is a few more letters in Arabic, but it's based on Arabic. And so you get told on day one, like, hey, go, you have to memorize this 90 letter alphabet and you need to know it by like tomorrow or the next day. And then you need to be able to write it very soon. And it's very intimidating, absolutely. Um, But for me, there was never a point where I was like, oh, I I don't want to do this because of the language. There were parts where I didn't want to do it because of the Air Force, but that's different. And the language part itself was always very exciting to me. Yeah, I, I do remember that, that at least in Arabic, that one word had multiple different meanings. Like, oh, I there's, remember, that, yeah, there's that too, for sure. Arabic I is never like the number two in the month February were the exact same word because it was the second month of the year. Mm-hmm. So context meant everything in the language, right? Is that, am I, am I hitting um, it right? Um, yeah, I mean, Arabic is fascinating that way because because it's so old um and so it was part of so many empires and it's like developed so complicatedly right like there's you can go and look up it's it's fascinating you the name is sod right there's an arabic name maybe it means lion on its face but if you go and look at like a they make these like name dictionaries it's like it's like a 500 word description 
of like why Assad means what it means and the whole context and this history behind the word. Farsi Dari have that to some extent, um, but it, I don't think it's not nearly as complicated as Arabic. Gotcha. Um, is th- so there is no point that you question doing this. What what was the hardest point of language school for you? It's probably I think it's like the first. So Dari is it's it's written down as like it's forty seven weeks. Uh, it's a I mean you spend a year there because um, of vacations and that sort of thing. It's insane. Um, yeah, the I think the first ten weeks. Uh, I think for most people, I don't have like hard numbers on this, but it, it feels true is the hardest because it is the most overwhelming like right. data part. It's just how many vocabulary words are you learning every day? How much new grammar are you learning every day? How many new sounds are you trying to learn how to make? How many new sounds are you trying to hear? The first 10 to maybe 16 weeks are uh, really, really difficult. And then after that, it, as long as you've made it that far, you weren't, you know, just like, struggling every day it becomes you have a good foundation and you can build upon that uh you mentioned the high attrition rate when did you start seeing people fall out Mm. four five weeks something like that like they just tap out and say hey i'm done with this or the school tells them hey you're not going to get this you're out of here a little bit of both i think i remember one guy in my class tapped out it wasn't necessarily clear if it was like ability or he really just didn't want to do the job <laughs> kind of like you were asking about another guy i know i think he needed to a he was incredibly incredibly smart dude um super super mechanically gifted laying like sounds were not his jam like one of the smarter people i've ever known in my life but could not do language and i i think that those people you know do exist and therefore they can pass the test because they're very smart the test to get into language school but once they get there it's sort of you know too much for the way their brain is wired now, 47 weeks, did you get Dari and Pashto in 47 weeks? You had to go back for Pashto. No, I had to go I had to go back for Pashto. Yeah. So I had to do this twice. I did. Yeah. I, I consider I was lucky to do it twice. Um, but yeah, some people might say I had to do it twice. You were lucky enough to do it twice. Um so two 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 times 47 weeks? No, so so Dari was a year. I, I went off and I, you know, went to my station and then I got sent back to my Pashto. Um Pashto at the time was a year. It was another 47-week class. It's since been uh, upgraded to a 63-week class because they realized it was probably too difficult to teach in a year. Uh, That said, I learned Pashto in six months because I went through an accelerated class and knowing Dari makes learning Pashto much easier. Gotcha. Is it it the reverse same? Does knowing Pashto make Dari easier? Yeah. There's a lot of, there's probably like a 20 to 30% vocabulary overlap. Right. Um, like Italian and Spanish. Uh, all the romance languages. You know, all the romance yeah, languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, even if it's not an exact, you know, one for one, word for yeah, word. You know, the root of it. Word. Yeah, there's a root of it and you understand it. All right. So, in between Dari and Pashtu, is that where one of your deployments occurred? No, yeah. I, I had to learn Pashtu to deploy. So, in between, um, I graduated language school, summer of 09. I had to go... I'd already been to survival school once. I had to go back to survival school for more advanced courses. Um, you have to go to uh, the, the cryptology school. It's in uh, Texas, West Texas, on Goodfellow Air Force Base. For for that, um, that school is dependent on your language. So if you go there for like Russian or Chinese or something, you're there for a long time and it's like very intense. For Dari, you're not for very long and it's not very intense. Um, 
I had to do that. And then I had to do water survival. And then I got to my station, which was uh, Herbert Field, which is down in um, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. I got there in like November of 09. And functionally what happened is that if, if you learn Dari and you go to Omaha to Alfred Air Force Base, where most linguists go, you're useful. Like you can do a job. If you go to special operations, Dari's not so useful because the Taliban, probably 90% or something like that, um, they all speak Pashto. So yeah, you know what language of Afghanistan, you know Dari, but you're not really going to be able to help in a firefight on an AFSOC mission. So, you know, the unit didn't necessarily have control over the language, the language that they were getting, right? Somebody in much higher level Air Force sent me and my best friend to Herbert. And the unit was like, well, you got to learn Pashto. And it just so happened that six months later, there was a, an opening. The Army had developed this sort of short, abbreviated course back at DLI. And my unit um, somehow finagled my best friend and I to go to that. Good old special operations. huh? And oh, by the way, Fort Walton is like not far from Lake City. No, yeah, I, I joined the Air Force to get out of Florida and I got stationed like an hour and a half. It's, 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 it's four and a half hours. Florida's really, really big. I know. Well, you go into the panhandle, but isn't Lake City like right below where Georgia and Florida are? Like just Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's so it's so far to the east. The east. Okay. Yeah. Like Fort Wallen is central time. It's like under Chicago. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I guess so. But anyway, I just thought that was uh, you know, ironic. No, it's funny. It's very funny. Um all right, so you go back to end up past you. Like, did you know you were going to a special ops unit or, or immediately or no? Mm, uh, I, it's the same thing. Um, you get assigned a language. At the end of your language school, you get assigned your duty station. And so there was a day where we all, we had to use government computers to do it. And we're all just hitting there, hitting, you know, refresh, 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 trying to find out where we're going. And uh we, we didn't know at the time what my best friend was told later is that he and I got sent to Hurlburt because we had both signed longer contracts. All of our classmates had four-year contracts, so they all got sent to Omaha, but he and I had longer contracts, so we got sent to special operations. Gotcha. All right. Patch two, then back to Florida after that? Yeah. Back okay. to Florida to learn how to fly. What? <laughs> what? Damn, man. I mean, the government, you, you're expensive. The government put oh, a lot it of is wild. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nuts. I mean, dear Lord, uh, when do you actually get to, when do you find out you're deploying? Mm, probably f January, February of 2011. Like I knew, it, I knew it was coming up soon because I was in my flight training and it was basically as soon as I'm done with flight training, I'm going. Where are you going in Afghanistan? Do you know? Yandar. Okay. What are you... Uh, I, I normally I ask what your mission is. I know what your mission is. It's to listen to, to people talk. But I mean, in what realm uh, and what support function are you doing it for? Yeah, so I, I learned how to fly on AC-130Us, which are very famous gunships. Yeah. Um, I When I got to Kandahar, the AC there were AC-130Us down there. Let's fly one second. When you say learned how to fly, like you were just a passenger, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not, not on my plane. plane. You're not a pilot. <laughs> like, it, 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 <laughs> I yeah. learned how to sit on an AC-130 gunship. Yes, noted. Got it. I learned how to sit on an AC-130 gunship, and I learned how to talk to the members of that gunship. Yeah. There yes. you go. Okay. <laughs> um, you, so, but when I got to Kandahar, there was a, a, a sort of, the gunships are very old. And so, therefore, at the time, was developing the next generation model. And there's a plane called the MC-130 Whiskey, which was the, the prototype for the next generation of gunships. And so 
Uh, gunships only fly at night, traditional old school gunships. They only fly at night because they fly very low and they're very easy targets. Uh, one of them got blown up in Iraq and a bunch of people died. And so after that, they said, we, we don't fly during the day. The whiskeys flew higher so they could fly during the day. And as you can imagine, that means they were in pretty high demand. Like there's lots of ops that go on at night, obviously, but there's also tons that goes on during the day. And the idea of having even a, a pseudo gunship or gunship light overhead during the day was was highly attractive to the you know guys on the ground with good reason. So I, uh, yeah, like you said, I'm, I learned how to like sit on a plane. So very quickly, it takes a couple of flights. I got cross-trained to fly on the whiskey. And so that's my entire first deployment. I flew on the whiskeys. Okay. Um, what is it, you know, when they, when they grab you and say, Hey, we're going out on a mission, kind of mm -hmm. take me through what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So flying is a very cush life. Um, it's pretty rare that someone's going to walk up and like grab you, grab you because you have crew rest and all these legal restrictions. But, um, so usually what happens is the day before a mission, you know, when the mission is going to be right. Cause you have to know when you have to sleep and when you have to be ready. So you find out the night before mission is going to be 0400 tomorrow. Cool. You wake up, you go, you get a mission briefing. So like weather, cause flying weather's really important. Intel, you know, what's been going on in the area. And then obviously what the mission is. So sometimes we could get, you know, say, Hey, we're going on a recon mission. We're going to score a combo or something like that. Or, Hey, we're going to some fob cause guys out there have been, you know, been taking pot shots from Taliban or something. Um, and then you go, you, you get all that briefing, you go out to the plane, take off, fly for however long it takes you to get there. And then you just circle overhead. So you just fly overhead uh, of wherever the op is going to be. Or if it's recon, right, you're flying, you know, like a zigzag or a line or a slow circle forward. And I am just listening to all the radio chatter um, that I can find and trying to figure out which of it's important, which of it isn't important. And then if it is important, so like, let's say I'm on an op and a firefight happens, then my job is to relay what I'm hearing to the interested parties. So sometimes that's a plane, sometimes, but usually that's the guys on the ground because what I'm listening to is very, you know, it's all just ticks. Um, so if I'm listening to a tick, I need to tell, usually it's a JTAC on the ground. Hey, you know, Taliban's over here. They're planning to bring in this weapon or they're planning to, you know, flank you and attack from the side or they're getting reinforcements or what have you. That's amazing. Um, it's a lot there for me to, to, to chew on. Um, number one, you said whatever you can find. I mean, I, I just, without getting too technical, I assume you have some sort of radio frequency that you're just scanning. I mean, how do yeah. you know what you stop and listen to versus what you don't like? I keep thinking of like the FBI listening into the mob, they, but they know exactly who they're looking for. Like you don't know who you're looking for to listen to. So, yeah. I mean, do you, are you looking for key words? Are you looking for them to say a name? Like, how do you understand what you're supposed to be looking for? You're looking for a needle in a stack of needles. Uh, Often. Yeah. I mean, if you were to do this like right now, like in Gaza or something, it'd be it'd be absolute wildness. Uh, <laughs> in Afghanistan, there's a lot. There are there's a ton of radio traffic for sure, even especially during the day. But and I assume uh, you can get cell phone transmissions too, right? Like people on their cell phones and calling. I, I didn't know. Oh, I really? Listen, yeah, I only listen to pretty much just like icon chatter. Okay, got it. The, the Taliban in battle, they they just use push to talk radios. That's it. Um, so that's what i'm looking oh, very for. primitive of them <laughs> effective too though man they yeah i mean that's what jtacs are using right just fancier push talks but yeah. 
Um, it, you know, it's instantaneous more or less. So it's, it's pretty efficient. That That's what I'm listening to. The, how you figure out what to pay attention to is pretty much context. So I, I give an example of it in the book. You know, it's like if you listen to a, if you hear a guy say, hey, yeah, I, I need you to get the truck for tomorrow. Well, that could be a dude talking about, you know, a whole village has one truck and everybody uses it. And it's like, okay, I need it tomorrow to transport whatever, my opium or some food or whatever. Um, it could be like a construction guy because I was flying during the day, right? So it could be a guy saying, hey, I need, you know, the company truck or whatever. Um, or it's a Talib saying, I need the truck that, you know, has our all of our AKs in it, something like that, right? Or I need the truck because we're, yeah, we're going to drive in and attack some fob tomorrow. But all I would hear is, hey, I need the truck for tomorrow. Like, that's it. And then you say, well, okay, some of it's just like gestalt. You know, I don't know. That doesn't sound like a bad dude. Uh, or, yeah, that sounds like a bad dude. Or some of it's, if I'm in the middle of nowhere and I hear that, is different from if I'm, like, flying near Kandahar and I hear that, right? Near Kandahar, there's, like, the base. There's a ton of trucks. There's a ton of traffic. Like, okay, it could be anything. I don't know. If I'm in the middle of nowhere, it's probably more interesting. And so it, a lot of it's on-the-job training. Right? I learned languages and I learned Pashtu quite well in language school, but that's lang that's language school, right? I'm reading the news and stuff. I'm not listening to dudes talk about how they're going to, you know, ambush Americans or Brits or whoever. So you, there's a lot of on-the-job training of like, okay, this is relevant. This isn't relevant. Here's why I feel this is relevant or here's why this is relevant. I mean, I'm trying to just, you know, you have no view of what's going on on the ground. Right. There, no, no you do. So, so gunships, right. Gunships have um, pretty fine sensors and the whiskeys because they're the next generation gunship have very, very good sensors. So they have very good cameras. So you can see, you know, which theoretically what's going on. So when a guy says, I need the truck, is there a chance you can see what truck could, he's talking about or. Yeah. Or I could say at least, Hey, look for a truck. Right. Got it. If I say, uh, okay. I say, hey, look for a truck. And the dude says, oh, yeah, you know, we're headed to Blah. And we look at the truck and we look at its heading and we say, oh, yeah, that's going to a village. Oh, okay. Probably the dude I'm listening to. I just, the amount of content, and you talk about the on-the-job training. I mean, how often were you wrong when you first started? Like, I don't say that as a pejorative. I'm just curious, oh, you know, yeah. until you learn the context of really what's going on in the lay of the land, you don't yeah. know what you don't know. You don't. So... <laughs> Uh, my very first mission actually was um, overhead, like one of the largest battles in Afghanistan. It was, I think it was the 82nd Airborne's largest battle since Vietnam. Like they they have that in writing somewhere. There's a video of it. It was in this valley called Barwala Kalai. Um, like a hundred Talibs were killed that day and six Americans died and a fair number more were injured. Basically, we just the Taliban had just said, screw it. We're going to ambush this fob, right? It was over in the Valley of Death. Um, and it was a huge, huge firefight, huge battle. And because it was my first flight, I was flying with an instructor and we were both just like, what is going on? There's just so much happening. Some of it's that where we were, the accent's really hard, but some of it's also just like, you're listening to how you don't even know how many people, they're not talking, right? At that point, they're like screaming the same way that like the, you know, guys on the ground are screaming at each other because you're in the middle of a firefight. Not only is it loud, but um, adrenaline. And so... What, thankfully, my presence wasn't like super necessary for that. Like, I didn't get anything wrong, and like, no one died because of me. But I also probably didn't contribute that much because it was like, what's important, what's not? How do I decide that? Who do I even tell? It, it was pretty wild. Fortunately, my missions after that were like not that crazy. Um, 
And, but I, I'm certain, I was certainly wrong. The language training isn't perfect. You're not perfect. The equipment's not perfect. Um, it's very easy to miss things. It's just sort of the nature of the work. How do you know when you have a piece of information that's actionable? Mm, it's really easy if there's a fight going on. Right? Well, yeah, that part. I mean, you know, was there ever a scenario where you got information before something happened that you were able to use? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, ambushes or there's an IED there or what have you. So okay, so can you give me like an example? Can you, you, you sort of? Uh, yeah, so you're you know you're um, doing recon uh, for a convoy because you have to go out to some village or whatever. So you have some mission out there, and you you know get some traffic. Like you hear some news talking that are they're tracking this convoy, right? So that's that's pretty immediately suspicious. You know, generic person in Afghanistan isn't keeping track of the position of MRAPs. <laughs> like that's not what they're interested in. In fact, they're probably very far away from the MRAPs because that's bad news. Dudes are saying, you know, they're here, they're here, they're here. Hey, you guy who's a few miles up ahead, check on where it is. Like they're coming, they're coming. And then you'll hear somebody say like, yeah, they're coming, get it ready. It's like, uh, get what ready? And if it's a combo, it's pretty obvious, right? The most reasonable way to attack a combo is with an ID. You don't have to aim. It's already laid out. You just have to wait for the trigger, right. or it's just going to be detonated by pressure. Um, that, or I, one time I gave a uh, heads up. There was going to be like a machine gun ambush. They sort of had one ready, and they knew the Americans were coming, or the team was coming. I don't remember if it was Americans or not. I, I mostly worked for Americans, but they knew the team was coming, um, and they were going to light them up with a pretty nasty machine gun. So I was able to tell them at a time. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Um, I, I mean, is there any satisfaction in that? Is that like that? I mean, how, how do you, you know, I mean, you're doing your job and you're doing it well, but it's just like, what is it, you know, what does it equate to you at that point? For stuff like that is, it's pretty, you know, pretty immediately satisfying of like, well, I, I, maybe I just probably, I just saved some, some lives. Like that's cool. Right. Interesting. Um, there's a lot of times though, where, or wasn't because, you know, sometimes you you know something's going to happen, but it's unavoidable. Like you could say, you know, hey, I know for a fact that that canyon that you're going to go in is dangerous, but that's just where they have to go. Like for whatever reason, the op requires that the team moves through that canyon. There's nothing to be done about it. All right, cool. I told them it's going to be bad, but it didn't stop it from being bad. Like they still had to go do it, and maybe they get shot, maybe they don't. Whatever. No one wants to be in a firefight, or very few people want to be in a firefight. So sometimes, even though yeah, you're like, well, I, I did my job, I did it well. It did it have any meaning? Like, was that meaningless? It, it's hard to hard to say at the end of it. What's considered a failure in your job? Hmm. You mistranslation, right? If you thought they said A when they actually said B. Okay. Um, I mean, is that did that ever lead to something bad happening? Yeah. I mean, you'll you'll think they said we're gonna be on the south side, and then they wind up being on the north side. Right? That's very different. When you're coming in, if you're coming in from the north and you and I told the guys coming in, hey, yeah, they're on the south side, like you'll be good. But they were actually on the north side, they get shot up. Right, that's real bad. If I said, you know, there's only three dudes, and it turns out there's 30, 
because the numbers the, the numbers aren't all that different and they sound weird over the radio or something but like yeah fighting three dudes versus fighting 30 dudes is very very different did, did any of those ever happen um things like that happen to a lot of people i worked with i had i had a couple of missions where yeah like i missed something but it wasn't it wasn't always clear whether that whether the conclusion was inevitable like even if i hadn't made that mistake there was no way to know that there was going to be a bad outcome but definitely people i worked with um had the had the misfortune of you know something terrible going wrong because of how, how did they handle that uh generally speaking not so well yeah i just i'm, I'm kind of you know is there I mean, like later on in, in my career and like later part of the story but to, to not i'm not trying to be evasive it's just to I don't know. is what it is um the a very large percentage of people who did the job i did um quit that job or and or usually and had pretty significant mental health distress like the Pashto linguists who worked for AFSOC overwhelmingly had severe mental health problems because of the job. All right, we'll get to that. Uh, I, I do want to kind of discuss that. And I know it's part of your journey as well. Um, you finished that first deployment. I mean, you know, so how do you feel afterwards? Like, I mean, you know, you, you kind of went through this long road to school and you finally get down there and, you're, you're you're doing this this airborne linguist thing and and now that it's over what are your thoughts and feelings significantly more complicated than they were when i went out um, why i when i went out so i i turned 22 like a few days into my first deployment so i was very young i was very gung-ho i'd spent so long in training right it's like when am i gonna do my job when am i gonna do my job and um when you work for special operations, right, you get told what you do is super important. Um, even if you're not told it's important, you're told it's like cool, sexy, neat, whatever. Um, those things weren't necessarily untrue, but they do place a large burden on you, right, to, to think, am I living up to that expectation? And so I was very excited to do the job, partly also because uh, the people who came before me and linguists who came before me had been, you know, kind of worked to the bone. It was like, well, I can, I can help, right? These are my friends, like I can help relieve them to, to some extent by the end of my first deployment i was significantly less gung-ho it was harder it was much harder to see sort of the purpose of what not just what i was doing but like the entirety of the war in afghanistan so 2011 we were after the push right in marja didn't really go all that well it was supposed to be this big deal it was supposed to help turn the course of the war we did not do that um right so i'm coming back to america halfway through 2011 and it's like where is this going? Like, what are we doing here? Coupled with, you know, what is, what is how to your question earlier, right? How important is my job? How much am I helping anybody? Yeah. I mean, you know, all of us at some point, especially when you get back down range, you'll have that sort of convergence of thought of what did I do and how did it fit into the bigger picture? And did we actually accomplish anything? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, it's not in vain, right? Those are those, those who perished did not do so in vain. Um, that's what you hope for. That's what you you hope that all that, at least in your mind, can coincide. That I did my job. We were successful for a small period that I was there. We both operationally, tactically, and strategically, you know, accomplished the mission. Um, 
It's not often that those get to align, though. And as you get more distance away from it, you realize that that prob- that alignment probably isn't what you think it is. That said, you end up having to go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're feeling on going back the second time. Were you excited? Were you did did your first experience sort of jade you a little bit to the whole thing? I mean, what, what's your mind thinking? Yeah, I mean, it definitely did. So I got back in July, early July, in time for the fourth, I think, of uh, 2011. I went back out uh, October. So I had I had to go back to like a language training thing um, somewhere in there for a month, uh, but. There was a sense of, of inevitability, right? Like, as you said, you know, they spent a ton of money training me. They really did. And so I, I had to go back out. Sure, fine. That's what I signed up to do. Cool. Um, but there was this big, big sense of like, when you listen to the Taliban as much as people who did my job did, it becomes very hard to imagine that you're going to beat them in any meaningful way. You can say, oh, I'll beat them in this battle. For sure I will beat them in this battle, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna gunship, dude. Like I can lay down a 105 millimeter round on you. What are you gonna do to me? But what okay, cool. I did that that time. Now what? Right? Is the Taliban gonna go away because of that? Are they even scared because of that? Mm, maybe they're scared in the moment, but are they scared enough to not fight again? Definitely not. So it's going back, it's kind of like, okay, well. Yes, it's inevitable I have to do this job, but also maybe it's inevitable because we're not going to beat them. Like, is that possible? And that's sort of the question, I think, unspoken or at least like un, unrealized. That was the question going through my mind going back for my second deployment. Did you think that there was any way you were ever going to be able to make a difference? It became increasingly difficult to believe that, yeah. Was there any way you could turn your focus of at least if I can help the guys on the ground, that's enough? Yes. I mean, so that was what I had. That is what I did for the majority of my second deployment, because as much as these questions are there, right, um, on the one hand, it's it's very difficult to not to think about that stuff during a firefight, right? Like it's like, well, this takes precedence just sort of um, by the nature of how the human brain works, right? Like you're paying attention to something, but also like ethically, morally, like, I, I am entrusted to help these people. Like these guys believe that I am at least trying to help them. So I, I, I better do that, right? I must do that. And so at least through my second appointment, I was able to do that. I was able to focus on the job during the job. But but at the time, if I wasn't flying, it was pretty miserable. Um, was the operational sort of tempo different on the second one? Were you, were you in more ticks on the second one than the first? Um... I think it was about the same. The end of my second deployment, I I went back to flying on um, like real gunships on AC-130Us. So that's all flying at night. You're not, you know, doing a ton of sort of recon type stuff. It's like there's gonna be an op. We're gonna go on this op. Gunships shoot quite a lot, right? They're they're better at it than the whiskeys were. Um, they have more capability than the whiskeys did. So I think uh, realistically, I killed more people in my second deployment, but. I think that was sort of most of that was like the nature of the plane I was flying on for part of it. When you say that, um, you said it matter of factly. I've, I killed more people. I mean, uh, can you give me an example how we got from point A to I killed some people? Like, you know, what the information? I mean, how actionable was the? Was it instantaneous? I'm I'm trying to, you know, for the audience, you're trying to get an, a, an understanding of a story of how that you can yeah. life. So. 
like a, a, a real there's like a real mission that happens in the book and so you know it's cleared by the dod and all that good just stuff um there's an op where we there was a team uh who's going in to talk to a village elder about building a well for the village and they did that they talked for like a number of hours and everything seemed pretty hunky-dory and they were on their way out when they got attacked right so all of a sudden like we're watching through our center and it's just like something in a movie just like bullets are hitting the ground around them and everybody you know spreads out so they're taking cover they're trying to get they're trying to figure it out so they're getting shot at a lot i'm listening to it we're trying to find the guys on the sensor we find them i'm hearing them uh i we get you know the when you're firing from a plane your jet attack pretty much has to give you permission um especially in like a live firefight situation like that so they they call it in and they called it in and we i was on a whisk this mission i was on a whiskey so we use griffins which are missiles not um traditional like bullets we you know fired griffin griffin went down hit the two guys who were shooting at them they blowed up they're dead uh and i, I listened to them the whole time that was happening i listened to them until the moment that the missile hit them and i then everything went quiet so that like that mission i absolutely i Till my dying day, I would say, you know, at the very least, I helped kill those two guys. And I don't, I don't feel bad about that. They were shooting at the JTAC, the whole team. Fine. That's how it goes. Um, other missions, I was on a gunship mission. Later in my second appointment, there were some dudes, three o'clock in the morning. They're probably not up to much good, right? You might be doing something benign, but like probably you're not up to much good in Afghanistan at three o'clock in the morning. Nothing good happens after midnight, Ian. Nothing. Remember that. Nothing good happens after midnight. Definitely nothing good happens after midnight in the wilds of Afghanistan. Yes, that is true. <laughs> um, they're, you know, they're doing around some shady shit and they're doing a bunch of shady shit near a team and we're not having any of that. It's not daylight. Like, you can't see them coming. And so we, I, uh, we killed eight dudes. We just laid down a bunch of 105s, a bunch of 40 mil, and shot them all. Um, from, from the gunship you were in. Yeah. Yeah. So those, it's like that was in the middle of an active firefight. I I contributed. I was part of the team. I heard stuff like fine. It's not as if we weren't going to shoot them if I weren't there. Right. And so that's you know, I, and I, I talk about this book and I, and just, I don't know if struggle is the right word, but I, I think about it to this day of like, well, did I kill those guys? Did I not kill those guys? Did I simply help kill those guys? If those dudes were going to die without me, does that matter? Does it matter at all? Um, but it, the easiest way to explain it is like, yes, okay, I was there. We shot them. They are dead. No, no. And look, I, I think it's – and let me just clarify. When I asked the question, you know, um, and asked for an example, by no means was I trying to say, well, you didn't pull the trigger. That, that's oh, no, I know. I know that. Yeah, that, yeah. that has nothing to do with it. That And it doesn't have anything to do with – you know, again, there are people I know that are on this earth. I didn't necessarily pull the trigger. You know, I mean, I, I've, I have that on my conscience, but it's the same sort of thing. I gave the order for you to mm-hmm. fire on somebody else and – those dudes aren't there no more. You know, I mean, that's, you know, that's uh, wh- whether you pull the trigger or not doesn't doesn't necessarily dissociate you from the event uh, mm-hmm. and your role in it. So, I, you know, I just want to be clear for the audience for that sake. It by no means. And, and the audience knows me. They know I wasn't d- attempting <laughs> to belittle you or, or undercut your your work or anything like that. I had nothing. Yeah, you know, I just wanted you to understand where I was coming from with it, because I think it leads to a bigger conversation that we'll get into about mental health um, and where you are with all this stuff, because, you know, um, I can only imagine. You know, I'm, and I, I don't want to stray too far from the actual deployment stuff because I do have a couple more questions. But just to relate a person, you know, I can still hear like radio calls in my ear 
from when we were in firefights. Like I can remember what was said to me and I can hear that beep go off, you know, when the radio starts to clap, you know, it starts to go and, and, and all that, like little things like that, that stay with you. Uh, and I can only imagine the conversations that still rattle around in your head at times that you heard. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few at least. Um, and they're, they're very strange these days because they're, it's like what language are they in or what language do they feel like they're in? Um, who is saying what? Sometimes that gets a little bit murky, but yeah, there, there's, there's a few of them. Sort of lighthearted question to pivot a little bit before we get back into the heavy stuff. What was something that you heard that seems so innocuous and ridiculous or silly and, and you know, that just made you giggle, you know, or something like, you know, uh, this guy just crapped his pants. Like, you know, like, I mean, whatever it is, something like that. There, <laughs> there was, there's, there's probably two. Um, one, it's like everybody knew it. Everybody I worked with knew it. Um, I didn't hear it firsthand and, and I would never claim that I heard it firsthand, but everybody knew this story that there is, it's middle of the night, Northern Afghanistan is cold and there's two dudes talking and one guy's clearly sort of, you know, the leader, one guy's the follower. And the leader guy says, hey, hey, go go put that IED down there. Like, you got to go put it down at, you know, that intersection. We know the Americans are coming tomorrow. And the follower guy is like, ah, but, but do I have to? Like, very, very whiny. And like, I, I don't want it. I don't want to do that. And they go back and forth and back and forth, right? Um, Afghans are very repetitive a lot of the time. And they, they just go back and forth many, many, many times. Dude, the leader is saying, you got to go do it. And the follower is saying, I don't want to do it. They finally go back and forth. And the leader says, go do it. Like, absolutely gives him a command. And the following guy says, I just can't do it. It's too cold to jihad. Which sounds like something out of a sketch comedy, but it's like an actually real story. Um, that it's, <laughs> to jihad, it's too cold for holy war. A hundred percent he was right. <laughs> it was way too cold for that shit. Um, so that's-, well, that's- I mean, Listen, I, I chuckle because like you said, it does sound like sketch comedy, but you know, I mean, it was the same. It was the exact opposite in Iraq in the middle of July and August, right? It was too hot to jihad. Right. Like, if it wasn't in place in the morning before the sun came up, wasn't happening at two o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Those dudes were just either at prayer or they were just like, hey, it's too hot. I'm not going out today. It's that, you no, know, so the Americans down. will be here tomorrow. We'll get them tomorrow. No big deal. <laughs> and in reality, it's too cold to jihad. That's hysterical. I, that, those should be t shirts. I mean, that that is outstanding. Yeah. Um, it's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I I probably will never forget that for as long. I may, I may drop that on some of my friends. It's too cold <laughs> to be hot today. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's just, it, I say this repeatedly. The, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, they have the one thing in their corner that Americans will never have, and that's patience and time, because they just don't care. Mm-hmm. They are not on any timeline. They do not care. They never will care. We always will be stuck to a timeline. We got to go, 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 because that's us, and we're very impatient, and those guys are like, eh, tomorrow, inshallah. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's big. So much of it is, yeah, that like the the nature of fate and you know, like divine will. And then for the for Afghans specifically, Al Qaeda, I, I think is different. And I'm I'm no expert in Al Qaeda, but for the Taliban, for Afghans, we beat the Soviets, we beat the Brits, we beat the Mongols, we beat Alexander the Great. I mean, what are you guys gonna do? Eventually, eventually, you're gonna go home. Eventually, yeah. Well, we keep proving them right, though. <laughs> That's the problem. We keep feeding feeding their ego and telling them that they're right. Um, neither, you know, even though we all know that they didn't win a lot of those battles on their own, but that's 
again, a different history lesson because the New York Times doesn't get delivered to uh, the front page of every Afghan village. So uh, mm -hmm. they don't really have a fair assessment of accuracy, but nor do they care. Um, you know, on, on the flip side of that, when you, you know, you have these, these moments of levity and everything else, um, is the other side, there are these moments of just grave trepidation and, and everything else that, that go along with it? Yeah, I mean, there's the... I mean, do you hear something that you like? You know you can't do anything about and you just know that there's this impending doom happening that there's, you can't stop or affect? Yeah, so I had a mission. Um, it was like in this like wild valley, just like these sheer cliff walls on either side. And and I heard, and, and it was really scary old school dudes, uh, old school Taliban. Like they, they were basically like Mujahideen, like from the old like Soviet wars. Like these guys were wild. They were marching down the side of a mountain with like a flag, a banner, which is not what you think of when you think of guerrilla warfare. Right? Um, and they, at some point, you know, they said, hey, go get the big gun. We're going to bring in the big gun. And so that's a Dushka, which is like an anti-aircraft gun. They're not, I'm not worried about my plane. They're not using it on my plane. They're hundred percent going to use it on the guys on the ground. And there's, I, but I like, I know a dude said that, but I don't know where that dude is. I don't know how far away that gun is. I don't know when they're going to bring it in. I don't even, maybe that gun's not even like, right. He, the dude says, Hey, bring the Dushka. And I didn't hear the next guy say, Oh, sorry. The Dushka's broken. I don't know if that could happen, but but I had no idea. And so a lot of that battle for me was waiting to be like, oh, okay, is it going to show up? Is it not going to show up? Is it going to show up? Like, just because they're bad news. So some, sometimes, yeah. When that second deployment ends and you come, come home, um, do you know you're kind of done with this job? Because you don't spend much more time in, in the Air Force after that, do you? I do not, yeah. I... I knew I was done deploying for at least a little while, uh, if only because, and I, I knew this and I told it to people, I a hundred percent would have killed myself if I had, had to go back and do a job. Why? Um, that's a very good question. It just wasn't compatible with life somehow. Like the job was not compatible with life because of the, the futility of it. The, the big picture futility, right? Like, Every linguist I knew, or almost every linguist I knew, who, you know, if you'd asked us in 2011, like, was America going to win the war in Afghanistan? We all would have told you no. Absolutely not. This is a waste of time, waste of lives, waste of money. So there's that. And then, and then, but I'm then getting that. You could say that lots of people can say that. It's very easy to say it now in hindsight because we know the outcome, right? But I, like, lived proof of that every day, listening to the Taliban say, like, no, we're not going to lose. 100% we're going to win. 100% we're going to kill more Americans, more Brits, more Canadians, more whoever. And it was it's just unceasing their will to do that. And that coupled with like going out, my first deployment, it was very easy to say, well, they're, they're bad, bad dudes for doing that, right? They're bad, bad dudes for killing Americans, killing Europeans, killing Brits, whomever. But in my second deployment, it's like, but are they? Because some of them are. A hundred percent, right? And and for sure, the Taliban is an entity like the Taliban that today in 2023 currently runs Afghanistan. Bad, bad people should not be allowed to have power. The individual Talibs, members of the Taliban that I was fighting, unclear. They, many of them are coerced by the big picture Taliban, right? Dude comes up and says, hey, if you don't join us, I'm going to take your wife away. I'm going to kill your cousin. I'm going to take all your food and you're going to starve to death this winter. What am I supposed to do? Like, yeah, I could off myself, but like, 
how many humans are going to choose that decision or any other version of like why or you know the americans had come in and killed that dude's wife or cousin or like burned all their opium so that they had nothing to sell to live on it's like well yeah i'd probably fight back too at some point like it, it's pretty rational if you took a texan and you went up and invaded their house at three o'clock in the morning and shot their wife chances are they're going to fight back at some point and so all of that together is just like what the what am i doing like what is this going to result in and that coupled with or flirted with throupled with how many missions where i was like i'm not i'm not helping like i'm just watching people die for no reason so somehow all of that put together it was very difficult for me to articulate any of that at the time it was just all this like big jumble of rage and sadness and despair um but i think looking back is probably those those are like the main parts of my extreme depression at the time i i want to follow up on that but i i when you said that you weren't helping um can you give me an example of people dying and you weren't helping like i i you know Oh yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's in the book. So there's much more detail about it, but we we had a mission, uh, in a small village, or whatever. And the guy JTAC on the ground is like, "Hey, what are those? What are those dudes doing over there?" And these dudes are, they're, it's not, it's super clear. They're working on some plot of land. It's like, are they farming? Maybe they're farming. I don't know. But the JTAC is pretty convinced that they're like hiding weapons. So long story short, we shot them, um, dropped a missile on them. They didn't all die. They should have. But something weird happened with the missile. And one dude instantly died. One dude got blown however many meters away, um, lost his legs. Another dude got blown away, another direction. That dude somehow ran off, came back with a wheelbarrow, picked his buddy up, but even no legs. And they tried to drive him off to get help. And we were trying to decide whether we were going to shoot the car that they were in because it was, um, are they going to go get reinforcements or something? And I was listening to their whole conversation. I was like, no, they weren't going to get reinforcements. They were trying to get help for their friend. And I listened to this dude watch his friend die because they stopped driving at some point. He stopped talking and he's like, never mind. It's too late. Like, we don't have to do this. So, you know, JTAC on the ground, he is much more familiar with threats than I am, right? And he knows that he got shot at yesterday and he knows that Taliban are wily and that they bury guns in fields looking like they're farming. All of that is true. To this day, I have no idea who we killed. Did I kill some civilians? Did I kill Taliban? Does it matter? Mm -hmm. So it's like, what's the point of that? If anything, there is not a good point to that. No, and that's that's fair. Um, and I I certainly understand uh, and empathize. You know, it's not a not an easy situation to be in. And um, you know, for the record, for what it's worth, you know, uh, everybody has a different level of morality about combat. Um, even though we know right is right, wrong is wrong. And, you know, good guys kill bad guys. And we're usually okay with that for the most part. That said, again, everybody's moral compass points in a little bit of a different direction. Uh, and where that rests for each individual is ultimately up to them. So I would never, um, you know, and I hope my audience would never, you know, some people are good. They, they were probably bad guys anyway, or they probably knew bad guys. You know, like you could rationalize anything you want. But at the end of the day, you know, there were times I know that I let somebody walk away because it just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. In my head and in my heart, it didn't feel right. Like, uh, maybe that's not what I think it is. And, you know, could I have been wrong? Yeah. You know, could they have gone on to kill another American? I, I don't know. I, I, I can't play that, go down that rabbit hole in my head. But I say all this again to say for you, 
for what it's worth that I, I appreciate your, um, your perspective on it. Um, and it's, and it's not easy. Um, and there is a certain amount of humanity that more of us probably needed throughout this whole thing. And, and I'll, and I'll say this, Ian, on the flip side, you know, um, I spoke to other guests who, after watching all their buddies get killed and after watching all their buddies get shot and one on one by one, everybody around them is going down. There's a certain level of anger and fear and frustration that you take out on the enemy because that's your job. Uh, and I understand that too. I don't, I don't get in the idea that we want to paint some sort of broad brush about combat and the morality of it and what's right and what's wrong for everybody is completely foolish. Um, and it's something that should never be done because every circumstance is probably different and every individual in each circumstance is different. So my long-winded response to what you were saying was, I, I appreciate your perspective on it um, and where you come from. Now that said, you know, uh, when you, when you decide to get out, you know, was there any sort of questions from anybody? Did anybody think you should stay in? Did you doubt yourself after you made the decision? Did I do the right thing? Like, where are you emotionally with it? Oh no, it was it was um, not well received to some extent, rightfully so. Right, spent a lot of time training me. Um, I saw time on my contract. Signed up to this job. That's all that their viewpoint of it. Um, but the, the the compressing a fair amount of time into a short version is that you know I went to mental health and mental health eventually it was just like, oh yeah, no, he can't do this. Like he's he's not you know. He's not lying or he's not you know inflating or something like this this kid's gonna something bad will happen if this kid deploys right the the i said earlier like i would kill myself if i deployed again that I, that felt very true at the time i can't 100 percent certainty say that right like i you know it, there's some courage required to commit suicide and like maybe I, I never had that but i was gonna get somebody else killed for sure because i wouldn't have been able to do my job at some point like i wouldn't have been able to focus and that seemed completely immoral right? Knowing that like you don't have the ability to do something and then someone trusts you to do that thing. And you're like, okay, well, sure. I'll give it a shot. Like that's, that is not tenable. So no, my, my command, my squad was not very happy with it. Um, they were not happy for a lot of reasons. A ton of linguists who didn't posture linguists stopped deploying because of very similar reasons of just like severe mental health problems. So they weren't super stoked about it until things sort of with mental health were um cleared up and then you know i got out to go to medical school and people are very supportive and very helpful and you know people wrote me letters of recommendation and all that was really great um do you think that if you had you know let's say you had more time in your contract and you had to to go again um i know you said you thought you, you might have killed yourself but was was there any part of you that felt like, Hey, I'm, I'm better at my job. Now I'm more able to compartmentalize, able to focus, um, you know, and, and able to execute the job. I mean, um, cause there's a certain amount of numbness you can turn on, right. Um, uh, you have to. Yeah. Um, I think on a technical level, I was better. I, for sure. Cause like I said, you know, all this on the, on the job training time, listening to people talk is, is a requirement of the, the job. So on a technical level, I was better. But that's what I spent most of, I think that's what I spent most of my second deployment doing was turning on that numbness. And as, as the deployment was going on, I was like, I, this is really hard. Like I can't like not hard, like 
like, oh, woe is me, it's hard. Not like physically difficult to do. It's as if I was trying to, you know, squat a hundred pounds more than I can physically squat. Like I, at some point you just can't do it anymore. Um, and that's, that's really what it felt like. Like I finishing the second deployment was doing all of that. Um, it probably, I mean, it didn't help that, you know, all my second deployment, another posture linguist who was way better at his job than I was like way better. He got out there and a week or two in, he had to go back to America because he was going to kill himself. And he already said that. He said, if you put me on a plane again, I'm going to shoot myself. And so it's like, I'm not alone. At some point there is solace in that, right? Of like knowing that you're not alone. I can't, for him and other guys like him who had all these feelings before me, it was very lonely. It was very difficult. You know, people didn't listen to them. I had the, you know, blessing of, oh no there's a pattern here like maybe maybe seriously i mean look credit to you for recognizing where you were mentally at the time because a lot of people don't obviously we know that um but i also would say that you know there is a um in this pattern what i'm trying to 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 put my finger on the pattern and, and where the tipping point is you know, um, and and is it that, again, some people can dissociate from the air to the ground. You know, I've talked to a lot of pilots who pull the trigger, right, who are the ones who, you know, there's there's a certain combat is a lot more personal when you see the guy <laughs> right in front of you. Right. Uh, there's a personal nature to it from 30,000 feet or 10,000, whatever it may be, whatever you're in, even from a helicopter at a couple of hundred feet off the ground, you know, laying damp rounds down on the enemy isn't as personal because it happens so quickly and you move on. Um, it, was that part of it? Was there, was it, you know, because you could see it all and hear it all, did it make it more personal for you guys? It's fascinating that this is such an important question. Thank you for asking it. Um, yes. For, for people who did my job, it was strangely much more personal than for anybody else on the plane. Right. Even the, the sensor operators who are operating those cameras and like watching dudes die. Cause you got to make sure they died. But they didn't like listen to that dude talking right before he died. And so, yes, it was on the one hand, very, very highly personal. And that absolutely contributed. On the other hand, we've seen this more and more uh, in the drone community, that there are people who have what, what you would imagine shouldn't be possible. Like, how could you have PTSD over a computer screen? But they do. Or at the very least, many, many drone operators have what's you know commonly called now moral injury of yes there is that huge distance like i i sort of firmly have this belief that it might actually be easier to shoot somebody in the face right in front of you because that guy was threatening your life right. than it is to shoot somebody from the comfort of a plane or the comfort of a drone the comfort of a drone you're six thousand miles away because it's like well what did that guy ever do to me i don't know that i don't know that the human brain is like caught up with well the yeah, i think it's an excellent point i mean you know imminent danger and self-defense or okay. preservation or our instincts that we we all, you know, uh, pre possess immediately. Um, there's a sense of playing God that probably weighs more on you than anything else. Like God never did anything to me. Why do I get to decide if he dies? <laughs> a lot of us don't want that, don't want that, that responsibility. But like you said, I think it's a very, you know, salient point in the sense that, okay, they're shooting at me. I'll just shoot back and eliminate this threat and I'll be put my head on the pillow at night. Whereas opposed to like, I'm not in any real danger, you know, it, it, it's, you know, it, it's kind of like, here, here's a bit, and I'm guilty of this as a kid. It's kind of like, you know, when you launch water balloons in oncoming traffic and they can't see you because you think it's cool, but mm -hmm. you don't realize the after effect of what actually could happen. 
right? And it's fun. Like, you know, you do stupid things like that as a kid, like, you know, but to the person behind the wheel, when something lands on their car and they jerk the wheel into a tree, you know, you have to deal with the repercussions of that, right? Like, but you don't really realize it. I think there's some of that where, you know, and I don't know if that's a bad example or not, but I just, you know, there's a whole sense of I'm not really cognizant of in the moment of making the decisions until after it happens, you realize, wow, look at the destruction I just personally took part in. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there this, I think the evidence bears that true because if you go look at veteran suicide rates, they're astronomically high. Fascinatingly, there's higher suicide rates amongst people who never deployed than there are against those who did deploy, which just boggles the mind at some point. Like that seems okay. Maybe there's a whole culture problem. I don't know. I'm not diagnosing it. And I, and I can't say that, but looking at that, just knowing that that statistic exists, it begs the question of like, well, why might that be true? Right. A drone operator technically never deployed. A drone operator in my mind, hundred percent would have a, a valid reason to at least have suicidal ideation because of the moral injury that is not necessarily part and parcel, but like it's very common in their job. Yeah, I mean, again, it's um, it's uh, I only know the personal level of combat, so I, I, you know, I have. Right, a, and I don't know it at all. Like I, I right to come to someone to a drone operator, they might say mine was personal, but I would look at you and and I would say no, mine was not personal at all. Yeah, and it, well, it's always dangerous to slippery slope to do that comparison thing, right? Because it's all different. I mean, I was never trained in that stuff, so I don't know what it is. I, I guess too, I wonder, you know. Do you know if you were listening to the same? How often were you listening to the same people repeatedly? Like, could you uh, tell? No, for me, it wasn't that often. Um, the nature of of special operations, and and some of it, the nature of when I was there, it was you know we would go up here today and over there tomorrow, and down here the next day, and the next. I, I just didn't know if there was sort of like that Stockholm syndrome, the sense where you hear the same people having these conversations every day, and even though you know they're doing wrong. There's right. a certain amount of like connection you have, like, hey, I'm I'm like watching this dude grow, you know, like it's almost right. like, you know, uh, it's a there weird. Are other, there are other linguists who have that. Um, the ones who do more strategic work, yeah, they will, you know, follow someone. They, you know, pattern of life is a term a lot of people know. Developing pattern of life, well, you have to get to know someone's life. So that that is, I think, like wildly more, even more difficult than what I did. Um. Is there a way to make your job easier and less mentally taxing? Some of it is technology is limiting. Um, the technology of, of how we did our job was limiting and that there were certain technological upgrades that we would ask for that maybe weren't physically possible or budgeting didn't allow for it or there's all kinds of reasons. Um, I mean, I was talking more about in the, in the mental aspect. Is there a way to make, I mean, do, do you think that like, if it was more time in between, cause you were going out every, almost every single day, especially in the special operations community where yeah. like, would it would have a mission a week off and then go back out for a minute. Would something like that have maybe mitigated some of the mental stress you guys are under? I don't think so because I mean, there's, there's like a lot of details that go into this that maybe don't matter, but but like how flying works and how expensive it is to keep somebody in Afghanistan, like maybe maybe that would help. I actually don't really don't think it would have, but like it's just it's an impossible solution. Right. You can't it's just like not the way it would be. Well, the only solution is to get more of you, so you get more of a break. Right? Yeah, the solution is to get more, and that's what they were trying to do, um, to varying levels of success. But that that takes right. I spent three years in training. The fastest you could have made a version of me 
two the years. absolute fastest is two years right yeah. so that's like what's what are the people working supposed to do in that two years um i mean unfortunately i think the the truth winds up being the only way to have made it better would have for it to have been a better war which it wasn't like so i i don't know anybody who's you know, I don't, definitely don't know, I don't know of any Americans who are fighting Ukraine, Russia. That seems pretty, like on its face, that seems pretty self-evident, right? Russia has invaded Ukraine. Russia is committing mass mass atrocities against civilians. So if I'm fighting back against Russians, makes sense. Like, I don't, I find it hard to believe that you're going to have a ton of, you know, moral questioning around that. Yeah. By, uh, by 2011 in Afghanistan, not so much. When Afghanistan fell in 2021, what did that do to you? That's why this book exists, actually. Um, so I, as it, as it was, as Good transition. Election, <laughs> uh, yeah. Good transition, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As the Taliban was taking back control, so right, the, the, the fall was in August, but there were reports before that going out through the year. So I was in my last year of medical school, and the last year of medical school was like, you don't have a lot going on, actually. Um, especially like the last semester of it. And so I had a lot of time on my hands. And it was also right, COVID stuff still happening, a lot of time on my hands. And I was just like for the most part furious because the way it was being talked about was gasp, how could this be happening? Right. Like there was some, you know, intelligence report that said, oh, the Taliban may regain gain control in six months. And it was more like 30 days. And you know, everyone is just shocked by this somehow. And again, it goes back to like, you could have asked me in 2011, you could ask most of the people I worked with in 2011, Taliban going to take back control? 100% they are. I can't tell you when, I'm not going to give you a date because like that's unknowable based on how many people are in Afghanistan fighting. But yes, they will. And so I had taken, I had pretty recently taken a writing course um, while I was in medical school and so I had all these feelings and I had all these feelings about those feelings and I didn't know what to do with any of them. So I was just like, I have to write these down, not necessarily for anybody, but just for me to like get my thoughts out. Right. It's like basically it was journaling at some point, but what I wrote down, I, I discussed with my partner and I wound up discussing with a couple of professors of mine and they encouraged me. They said, more people need to hear this. Uh, and so I sent the essay into the Atlantic and they published it like right around when, you know, the Taliban took back Kabul and the, bananas withdrawal and everything um and so because of that you know a lot of people read that and so eventually the book came out of that um we're, we're i'm just curious and this is only a personal question um where do you place the blame for afghanistan <laughs> that's a hard question um have you read the afghanistan papers by craig whitlock I started to, I never got through all 150 pages. So, you know, I got about 30, 40 in. And then yeah, left. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's like sort of overwhelming the amount yeah. of data he, you know, had to go through. Um, it probably goes back to politicians who are around sort of mid to late 2000s, I think. I think by the time you get into the 2010s, it was just a lot of inertia. And that has nothing to do with like my politics. Like I, I dislike a lot of people who are in power that, all sorts of times um i just think that yeah by by 2011 it's like well somebody else already put you know 80,000 people here like well you it's really hard to undo that uh, and iraq is no different for the record i mean you know I, I the best way i heard it phrased was by like 
2009, um, we had reached hull velocity in Iraq, and that that uh, somebody was a sailor told me this, that hull the hull of a ship that ultimately defines how fast it can go, mm. just from an aerodynamic standpoint. Mm-hmm. So um, we had reached hull velocity of, in Iraq in 2009. Nothing was ever good. That was the apex. Nothing was ever going to get any better. It was only going to go down from there. We had, were never going to find anything better about it. And uh, when I was there for the closeout in 2011, because I had deployed, you know, 05, 06, and then five years later, I was there again. And mm-hmm. you could tell everything was down. And it wasn't just because we were leaving. It was just because nothing conceivably could have gotten any better. Um, and I, I think there was a certain amount of that Afghanistan that we ignored for probably 10 years too long. Super, yeah, super, super duper. I mean, the Taliban capitulated. Look at these split. They were a bunch of podunk idiots, man. Like we, we go in F9-11 and they, they were done so fast. But we had this idea that we had to get every single guy, right? And like they had to make a big show of giving in. I mean, I, I think that some of this is my opinion. I think a lot of it bears out in the Afghanistan papers and other books that a lot of, if you had to choose a person to blame, you could probably choose Rumsfeld because he just had this vendetta uh, that was not fulfillable. I think it's a little bit ludicrous to blame a 20-year war on one person. Like that, that seems kind of wild. Agreed, 100%. But, but the, people, the people in that mindset, in that time frame of like, 2000, 2001 functional. So let's say 2002, let's be generous, 2002, 2008. It's like they were they were lying to the American people. They were, that is not, that word is accurate. They were lying. They said things were happening that were not happening. And they were afraid to lose face. They like were like, no, we already sunk all this money in. We can't possibly, like, how could we lose to, you know, these farmers in Afghanistan? Which then how many hundreds of thousands of people died because of that? On both sides. Um... Yeah wild are you angry about the withdrawal mm, yes um are you more angry about the, the actual exit or just the overall result of the exit i think i'm most it's probably it probably winds up being accurate to say i'm, I'm angry about the actual physical exit right like people like c17s taking off and afghans hanging on that was botched from day one yeah, so botched. But but I'm actually, I think I'm most angry at the everything that led up to that. So I'd like to say the year prior, probably, because it's not like like it, it wasn't a surprise. As this is what was so infuriating as I was trying to write this essay out, that people were surprised that the Taliban was coming back. It wasn't a surprise. Like you can, it's it's in Afghanistan papers, right? The week prior, you had people working in the embassy, just like going around doing their day-to-day work. And it's like, dude, the Taliban just took back the three the three remaining largest cities in America or in Afghanistan, like all that's left is Kabul. This is shit's going to hit the fan. And so, yes, like on the, on the granular basis of like that day, those days, of course it was poorly managed, of course, but it's like, it was so foreseeable. That's what I'm really, really mad about. It's like, you could have, you really could have prevented this. And the other reason I'm asking these questions, just to be clear uh, to you and the audience, you know, I mean, the, the, the moral injury that you talk about, and again, it goes back to the whole, it was not in vain. Well, it kind of all was in vain the way everything had happened. You know, like there, there's, I didn't deploy to Afghanistan. I only deployed to Iraq. I've been to Afghanistan several times, but I didn't technically deploy there. Um, that said, you know, um, I uh, I don't have much moral injury about Iraq. Like, you know, Iraq's back to being a mess. We all know that, even though it's not being reported, you know. We still have the State Department there of 2,500 people, the largest in the world, which I don't know why, but it's not actually doing anything. Beyond all that, 
there's not any, you know, I was, again, I was literally there for the ending of Iraq. So, and, and I always chuckled about how we told the whole world we were leaving a year ahead of time. And we seemed to get out of there without a scratch on anybody and a single issue. Yet when we told the world we were leaving Afghanistan, all of a sudden, look what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, the, 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 the dichotomy of those two is not lost on me, but I don't have this big moral injury about Iraq, but I certainly have a lot of sympathy for my friends who are in Afghanistan and people like you um, when the exit happened because it ripped off a lot of Band-Aids, man. I mean, it ripped off a lot of – cut open a lot of scars that a lot of people had. Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought about this till this conversation, but like thinking of this idea of – I think any any or almost any individual's actions in Afghanistan, like individuals who served and, and were you know, military adjacent or whatever – their actions were not in vain. I think the United States policy wound up making what everyone did in vain. Agreed. Completely annihilated any good faith that you know we tried to enact for our compatriots, for Afghans, for the global community, whatever. Like it just they completely undid it. So it's even if you had felt good about what you did before, maybe all of a sudden you're just like, well, shit, I shouldn't feel good about that. I was pointless. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's kind of the point. I mean, look, no one has a strategic thought in their head when bullets are flying. Right. And you almost never have a strategic thought when you're actually downrange. So the, the whole strategic thought process comes in after you get back and you sit back and you realize, and you start to take some big picture values of, of what was going on um, and how effective it was. And you realize, man, you know, that's why, again, it was just like, what do we, what do we waste all that time for? What do my friends die for? What do we, if, if that's the way it was going to end, what, what, what do we do all this for? Even in the moment, if you were winning a battle, even if the moment you were taking back land, even if the moment you were bringing bad guys to justice, all of that falls under that same umbrella of what do we do it for if we just hand the country right back to them in less than a week? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so I understand that and, and, and I get it. Um, in writing the book, how much catharsis did it give you? Um, a, a fair amount, I think I... A lot of the book is stuff I had been thinking about for, you know, 10 years, but I hadn't concretized is the word I keep coming back to, but or I had it organized even. There were just, you know, feelings that I had and I was able to put them out there. Um, I think being able to, even if only, you know, 50 people buy the book or whatever, and they can see some of the incredible work that my friends did, you know, these brilliant people that I worked with, that is like a wonderful feeling. Um and then if beyond that anybody else can sort of read the book and, and look at the complexities of humanity in wartime um that i think is very, is very cathartic and like the idea that anybody else could maybe hopefully take that away is very cathartic yeah um it's not a conversation i often have with people who haven't been to combat um <laughs> you know and if i do have it it's more of a directive than it is necessarily a conversation <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, again, it, it's just it's like trying to explain childbirth to me like you know sure yeah that that's that sounds like it's painful yeah but i i just it's an experience i don't have so i'm never really going to be able to to as much in my head yeah i can handle it yeah i can tolerate pain i'm good like you know it's just right. I, I don't i don't have a real awareness of it so from that standpoint yeah um I will say this, and I, I mentioned this earlier, it's always dangerous, especially for people who've never been there, to try and put morality of co- combat into context. It's never, there's no one way to do it. It's not cookie cutter. It doesn't fit in a box. You can't wrap it up nicely. It's There's no bow that goes on it. It is messy and ugly all around. Yeah, I mean, William Volman is a 
this like mad genius and author and he wrote a book um on violence that's not the title but that's what the book is about and and he's sort of like crazy but also he's incredibly smart and his conclusion he had to write like 3600 pages to develop a moral calculus around violence and <laughs> that's that's literally he was like six volumes it has to be this long there's no other way that this is possible so if he's even even if he's like somehow 10% right right that's like 360 pages of wildly well researched thinking yeah. to somehow come to an agreement about like what is right or potentially wrong when in you know conflict what do you want people to take away from the book um i i think that that sort of phrase i said earlier about the complexities of humanity in combat i think so much of detailings of wars often gets very one-sided and that's i don't know just the nature of humans right we side with our own history is written by the winners remember that <laughs> yeah yeah but you know that, that would mean that the taliban gets to write history so you better listen to them yeah um you know and i i wonder um and, and just learning, and this is, you know, again, brand new for me and learning all about this, um, you know, the idea that uh, your work, because it, it is pivotal, right? I mean, and again, I, it goes back to just me having an interpreter uh, and, and how close I became with him over the course of the whole thing, because, you know, he sat in the truck behind me and he wore a helmet and a flak vest and carried a gun and, you know, put his own life on the line every single day like I did, because everywhere I went, he went, except for one time. That was a bad mistake on my part. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's just that, that whole language thing, you know, in, in one way, it's so um, it, it's a job, but it, it's such connective tissue. Right. Like the idea that you're, you're you can learn another language and speak to people. And, and you know, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering how much of the emotional component is that um, or maybe you were able to comp compartmentalize it and it was just a job, but it feels like there's some of that connective tissue that that resides in some of the emotional issues. I I don't think that that part is compartmentalizable, right? Because learning a language is not like learning math, like language, language. Um, I, I'm reading a, a book on like by the, the godfather of linguistics, and, and he says that language is inherently inter interdependent upon others, right? You speaking does not matter unless someone else hears it. Just anything I could say, it doesn't matter. It does, doesn't count as language unless someone else hears it. So that's part of it. And then the other part is that in order to learn a language well, if you know Spanish, if you know Italian, right? Italians, they talk with their hands. That yeah, it's a it's a it's a thing that we make fun of people, but like it's true. It is a necessary part of their speech, right? It, word order matters, like all these things, learning the culture of how so of a, you have to learn culture to learn language. It's absolutely true. You cannot learn language in a vacuum. And so that means that you have to understand those people. And so the nature of the job would thereby prevent compartmentalization, right? Because you, you just can't. It's it's hardwired into the job of the language that the people who speak that language. Yeah, pretty fascinating. By the way, from 100% Italian, I know what you're talking about. So uh, you, you didn't offend me. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, too, you know, with the book, you know, give me some more just, you know, overarching themes within the book that you felt were necessary for the audience to know. Um. Learning language is, uh, it's an old proverb in many, many communities. Learning language is like gaining another soul. It's very true. Uh, if you can even learn 10% of another language, you should do it. It'll change your life. It's incredible. Um, as much as maybe, especially the latter half of this conversation sounds, you know, negative, uh, very negative even. 
I join no, it's Air Force. real. It's not negative. It's just reality. It's yeah. not our, but, part of our job. This is this is it's it's part of what we do. It, 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 yeah. You can escape it at this point. You yeah. know. Um, but so joining the Air Force is, is the best decision I ever made in my life, and you know, the second best decision I ever made was getting out. I'm not saying everybody should have to get out, even a little bit, but. I think like no, if you know that kind of going into the book, you might um, not necessarily fall prey to like there's there's a fair amount of ranting and like that sort of stuff, but like that's just part and parcel of it. That you know, overwhelmingly joining the military changed my life in ways that I would never undo. Like I would, you know, some people have asked me, would you go back and you no, know, not join the hundred percent not? Like I would absolutely do it um, because it changed my life in a lot of ways that I think are just important to who I've become as a human. And so if nothing else, I, the, the book is technically it's a memoir, right? Um, technically it's a war story, but it isn't really either of those things. It just happens to be about a small person, a small part of a person's life predominantly in the middle of a war. Yeah. Um, and I will say this much, and you say, you know, talk about culture and language and everything else. And, and, um, and again, just my experience in Iraq, you know, I can't tell you, I can remember vividly when uh remember i told you earlier about how this guy started picking up language and, and context and was able to speak it enough to uh, i i can remember you know the more and more i started to show the iraqis that i was working with that i could speak their language um the easier it was for them to relate to me as a person it, it breaks down tons of barriers I, i'll never forget I, I i literally um at the end of a meeting, I went through like two full sentences of where I wanted them to be, when the next meeting was, what time, what day, and everything else. And I said it all in Arabic right to them. And every one of the Iraqis went, their eyes like popped out of their head, like, like they were just totally taken aback by the whole thing. Right. I'll never forget my interpreter looked at me and said, Okay, so I quit. I go home now. Because you know? <laughs> it, it was just, but it was that, it was like that moment. It was that moment where they connected with me as a person. It stopped being about my rank. It stopped being about my job. It stopped being about me being an American person. It just came about me and them as people. And I think that that connective tissue um, in language is, is, you know, through this conversation is sort of, you know, reaffirmed in my head that that means a lot to people when you, because you're investing time in them and who they are and where they come from. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's God, that word is so good. Investing. Right. If I'm not saying that sitting down and I don't claim this in the book, but sitting down and talking to the Taliban wasn't going to make the Taliban, not the Taliban. Right. Again, real bad ideology, real bad. They don't believe in educating girls. They believe in insane punishments for all kinds of stuff. They don't believe in music. It's ridiculous. But or and sitting down and talking to them and figuring out, like, what is going on? maybe they just like don't want to kill you as much that that probably see, that seems a better outcome to me that like people want to kill each other a little bit less in the world yeah um again it's crazy uh and, and the story is 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 fantastic and i thank you for telling it to us uh, i really really do and again title of the book uh what the taliban told me i'm sure you can get it anywhere and uh you know, uh, check out the articles in the Atlantic that you wrote, what I learned while eavesdropping on the Taliban, what I learned while hunting humans. I think those are certainly um, very, very important pieces uh, for people to understand a little bit more. And, um, you know, you can get the book everywhere, I assume, audiobook, all, all sorts of forms. Yeah, I, I narrated the audiobook so you can listen to my dulcet tones. Yes, um, there you go. Did I lose you? What happened? You're still there? Okay. Mm -hmm. Pause for a second. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I again, what the Taliban told me, I'm, I'm excited to read it. I'm excited to go through it. I think that there is, you know, a certain level of, uh, um, the humanity is what's really kind of drawing me in um, because it's not often we spend a lot of time in this and it's not often we spend a lot of time in this with somebody who's been there. It's easy to write, you know, books about humanity when you haven't seen the depravity of it. Um, <laughs> it's hard to write books about humanity when you've lived through it uh, and have a firsthand perspective of it. So uh, genuinely appreciate your time. Wish you nothing but the best going forward. Take care of you, man. Where are, where are you now with all the mental health stuff? How are you feeling? Oh, I'm I'm significantly better. Um, I eventually got some very good therapists, and I have a lot of wonderful humans in my life who support me. So, uh, yeah, I'm way better. Do you, do, I mean, does it feel reconciled for you to a certain extent? Um, no. I this is like because I love words and I'm, I'm focused on words all the time. But I uh, the idea of reconcile or, or closure, right? It's closed loop somehow that it's over and it's done. I have the hint that the way you talk about it, like Iraq will never be over for you. Afghanistan will never be over for me. It's not a thing that, that ended for, for my brain, I guess. Um, that said, like, I don't, it doesn't, you know, I don't wake up screaming too often anymore. Right? Like I can't, right. I can't you know what it is though. And I'll add one more thought, you know, and this creeps in time from time, you know, I, I what you're not over is what the war did to you. It's not that I'm not over the moments. It's not that I'm not over the things that I experienced. It's not that I'm not, I don't have closure on decisions that were made, right? We talk about, hey, you know, I just got that guy killed or whatever, or I, I just shot somebody. It's not those moments. It's just what you don't get over is that I'm not, you're still mourning the loss of who you were, right? And that or, is something. Or mourning like who you became. I think for a lot of people. Well, yeah. And adjusting to who you've become, right? And, and understanding who that person is. So I think that that's, you know, that's the other part of it. But again, uh, what the Taliban told me, great stuff. Uh, Ian, certainly appreciate your time. Wishing you nothing but the best. Great success with the book going forward. Uh, and certainly, uh, if you're writing another one, let's have you back and then we'll, we'll discuss that one as well. But I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Ian Fritz, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.